Boredom is the dream bird that hatches the egg of experience. A rustling in the leaves drives him away. Walter Benjamin Hello and welcome to The Mirror. I'm Justin Reed and how are you all going out there in the world? Um, today I wanted to just go a little bit freeform. Um, I think it was episode five I did this and I mean, you know, sometimes inspiration strikes and you feel like you have a lot to say but you feel like you need to get it down and structure it. And then when you kind of structure it and then put it out into the world, it can come out really good or maybe it can come out a little stilted. And then sometimes inspiration strikes and you just feel like you just need to go with the flow and take it where it is. And again, sometimes it's not so good and then other times um, it works out really well. So I don't know which time this will be, <laughs> but yeah, I just wanted to keep it a little bit loose because I've been thinking about something a little bit lately and you know I speak a lot about um, engaging with more challenging artworks on this show as a means to you know not only increase your knowledge and uh, your reference point for creating your own art but also to grow as a human being you know to uh, understand things that are maybe challenging or foreign to you to confront yourself uh, you know, to, to be confronted with, with um, concepts and ideas that are maybe extreme in nature or maybe are the opposite of extreme. Maybe they're quite mundane, but um, can be like quite confronting either way. And I've been thinking about this a little bit. So I guess what I wanted to talk about is sort of this idea of entertainment in our culture and sort of its its role in creating a sort of catharsis within us that was never really there, I think, throughout a lot of art's history. Like, you know, if we're going way back when to sort of prehistoric days or Neolithic days, uh, you know, art was a means of storytelling, a means of communication, a, a wayfinding tool. Um, and, and throughout the age, it, it has symbolized uh, status. It has symbolized... Um, all different kinds of things. But I guess at its heart, art is a method of storytelling and sort of a marker in the sand, whether it was intended or not, of a, a time period and what the people in those societies have gone through. And this idea of like entertainment, like art as entertainment, I think is still pretty modern. I mean, it's probably been around for hundreds of years, if not longer. But especially in our culture where we have a sort of completely captured uh you know, cultural output that entertainment seems to be, by and large, the the prevailing um, the prevailing ideology, which I've spoken about previously, kind of dictates the forms of art and you know what art looks like and your relation to it as a consumer of it. But also, as I spoke about, I think in episode uh, episode two about social media and, and the effects on art creation. Um, this idea of entertainment as like the prevailing ideology also affects the way that you create your art. And so in an attempt, in an attempt myself to kind of get out of this, I guess, vacuum and trying, 
trying to push myself to explore my own self deeper uh, and channel that into my art creation, which, you know, is still very early days as I've spoken about. It's still like a new thing to me, but it's not exactly a new concept because this is how things used to be. You know, I'm instantly struck with an idea of, you know, someone like a Vincent van Gogh. And I know he's kind of fetishized a lot because of the sort of suffering with mental health that he had and the misery that he lived in and the, you know, the kind of, um, this harmonious thing that he created such beautiful works of art from his suffering, but that's not exactly what I mean here. I just think about him and like the, the beauty of the work that he created says something about the human soul and the human experience. And I think, you know, his life and I guess the sort of mythologizing around him kind of add to this. And that's how we, I think in a sense, like aesthetically, you know, his work, it's, it's beautiful. It's striking. It, I, I actually got to see the starry night in real life a few years ago in New York and I walked around a corner and I just saw it and it was a lot smaller than I thought, but it just floored me. Like I just, I was just floored by the magnificence of it and the presence in the room that it had. Um, but you know, beyond aesthetics, I think, I think it just says something about the way that artists can see the world and how they can transport people to another place and to empathize with different things. You know, these are not unique concepts. These are things I think on some fundamental level we all understand, but I don't think it was ever the intention of Vincent van Gogh or his peers to entertain, you know, maybe there's a sense of like wanting to impress people. And maybe there's always been a sense of like validation that artists seek that comes with, you know, just being more in tune with the fact that this is an imperfect world and very often we don't understand each other. Very often it can be incredibly difficult to understand each other. Maybe it's not even a language barrier thing. I mean, I, I personally find it hard to uh, communicate and understand people who speak my own language who live in the same regional place as me. But art is, I guess, I see it as the language that can transcend languages, that can transcend um, you know, the spoken word in conversation where sometimes, I mean, some, sometimes you just can't express yourself that way. I know that I'm reasonably good at it, but I also think that I, I don't want to say it's superficial, but I can only sort of go to a certain level. And then beyond that, I think like my artistic expression, the visual imagery that I create, I feel like that is where I most feel at home. And there feels like a sense of um, weight to it almost. Like when I am filming something and trying to communicate something through that, it is more challenging, I guess, than just saying something. But I think the challenge is not just a technical challenge, but rather a challenge of trying to channel that deeper emotion or, or concept or abstraction of an idea into something visual. Um, that That's where the challenge comes for me, but that's also where I guess the reward comes from. And I mean, that that's the artistic process. That's not necessarily, um, you know, the, the viewing of it or the understanding of it or the interpretation of it. But, you know, art has many lives. It has, an, it has lives as an abstraction, as, uh, sorry, as an idea, a concept. And then you bring it into life as an abstraction in the form of a, a film or poetry or a painting or a theater performance or music or the written word, whatever that may be for you in, in, in your instance and, and in the case of the particular artwork. 
and then it has another life when it is viewed and then interpreted by the viewer. That has traditionally been, and for, I guess, thousands and thousands of years, been the relationship between art, you know, art, artist, and the audience. That's great, AAA. But now, I guess, in our hyper-mediated and, you know, overly marketized culture, we have this new, I guess, this new interplay between the audience and the artwork and also the artist where the sort of, like I said, the prevailing ideology for mass market culture is entertainment to, to give someone some sense of uh, diversionary pleasure, uh, whether it's a distraction or whether it's to channel catharsis. I mean, I, I just think, I think a lot about things like political movements and I, I won't name any particularly because I don't think it's necessarily important to identify them, but the way that certain political movements sort of are channeled um, into becoming a an expression of entertainment as well in the way that, you know, you'll watch, um, you'll watch a sporting event or, or you'll look at uh, credit card companies giving you a, uh, creating an advertisement about like, you know, whatever political topic it is. I'm sure if you think about these things in your mind, you could probably conjure something like think of the idea of a company like, um, you know, any, I guess any, any company that sort of thrives off the misery of people, especially if it's, um, you know, minority communities or, or if it's a, uh, just anyone who's sort of, you know, not in the elite ruling class, um, kind of communicating back to those people that we're on your side, we're with you, we stand with your cause, even though they are the ones like immiserating it. They are, they are creating beautiful, flashy graphics and advertisements and, you know, putting money behind projects that promote political causes or promote, um, you know, any type of like societal, societal cause, even though they are the, they are the people that are responsible for the problem in the first place. So, I mean, that, that's just like one example of it. But I think that like, I was thinking about this in regards to, you know, what I talk about with like internet content becoming like what I talked about in the dosing culture episode where it's completely smooth and, uh, you know, it has, it has like no rigidity to it. So it just goes down easily. Um, and sort of like replacing, books and films and, and theater performances, poetry, um, you know, more ambitious music, whatever it may be, like is being replaced by this type of content that just sort of runs right through you. And I was thinking about this in regards to an article and like subsequent um, uh, sort of polemics that um, Matt Chrisman has spoken about how this idea of like prestige TV series are like the future that replace books and movies. And it's like, why would we need books and movies when we have our TV shows? And I mean, it's exactly that reason. It's exactly that there is, um, this type of content that is incredibly easy to consume. You know, it's packaged for you. You can separate it into ways that are convenient for you. Um, like, you know, half an hour long TV shows or hour long TV shows, Whereas something like a book or a movie, I think because people, their brains have changed and adapted to the rapid pace of, of technology and the rapid pace of 
news and media and things like that, that they can't engage with films and books anymore. And I mean, I'm patient zero for this. Oh, okay. I'm not patient zero, but I'm exhibit A definitely because I've struggled with that and I've spoken about it and just the nature of like being a filmmaker, but never watching any films. I was like, this is untenable. Like I can't say that I'm a filmmaker if the only films I've seen are the NRMA insurance ads, you know, <laughs> like sure they aesthetically look great, but it's selling insurance. Like what kind of, what kind of like, what does that really say about our society? What kind of art, what kind of art and expression is that? And what am I really taking from it? And I guess that's why I felt like such a hole within myself, just in terms of like engaging with the art world. I mean, I'll get into that a little bit more because I think there's a, a spiritual component to that. But I mean, just in the realms of like everyday life, consuming media and just feeling like there is just this giant void where, I don't know, you can't, you feel like, you feel like, um, you feel like you just have no memory, like not, nothing has happened, even though you know that you've watched like a thousand and one videos this year on YouTube, you know, you've listened to 300 podcasts, but you just can't remember any of it. Nothing sticks with you. And that's because I guess that type of content and indeed this type of content that I'm speaking about, which I know is deeply ironic, but I mean, it has its usefulness and I don't want to pretend like, okay, I'm not going to say to you here, podcasts are bad, but listen to my podcast because that's not what I'm saying. That's not the message, but rather when you think about your, um, your consumption habits and I want to diagnose sort of not diagnose. I want, I want to kind of unpack that word as well. Consumption. When you think about your habits, like and if you're an artist, as I assume you would be, or at least have some tangential imi- uh, interest in art, listening to this podcast, you probably want to be consuming art, right? Because that will help you kind of understand form and understand tone and understand ways of expression, understand the history, as I've spoken about before, that you can draw upon and to build an uh, an internal and well external if you you know, keep a a journal or or like to build some kind of online collage or something through Pinterest or Instagram or whatever it is that you use um, to actually draw upon for your references when when you're creating your own work. Because yeah, nothing happens in a vacuum, but as I've spoken about too, and I think I've realized that's my, um, it's probably my number one phrase, listen out for it on every episode as I've spoken about, or as I said before, as I said in this episode, you want to have a, 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 a wealth of, I guess you can say higher quality, but it's just like, for lack of a better word, I just keep coming back to the idea of like challenging artworks, you know, because it is more challenging to go outside and watch a theater performance. It is more challenging to go to an art gallery. It is more challenging to go to the cinema and watch a film than it is to sit at home and watch YouTube content. And again, I'm not going to pretend like I'm sort of leading the way here or that I I have figured it all out or that my approach is the best approach. I mean, it's going to be different for everyone. I can't, I can't assume your circumstance and what it is that you feel like you need. But I know for me, putting myself out of my comfort zone has really helped. And even though at this point, really all I've really engaged with in my, you know, sort of intentional art journal process this year, the large portion of it has been films. That's still a huge step forward for me because 
I, I have sort of created a benchmark of what I think is a challenging film and then what I think is like not a challenging film. And one of the through lines of this is quite often that the entertainment value of the challenging films that I'm watching is slim to nil. <laughs> uh, and that can be quite difficult for sure. Like I watched a film called The Turin Horse by the Hungarian filmmaker Belatar. I've kind of mentioned him a little bit before, but he's kind of the, the sort of go-to guy when people talk about slow cinema or sort of like more more recent transcendental film style um, that was sort of pioneered by the Italian neorealists after World War II, um, French filmmaker Robert Bresson, uh, Yasuhiro Ozu from Japan, like their work, which admittedly I've not delved into any of it because it seems incredibly challenging for me. But hey, I'm stepping towards that. Uh, and Carl Theodor Dreyer from uh, Denmark as well. Their early works kind of paved the way for someone like a Bellatar who, I mean, to give you an idea of what the Turin horse is like without sort of specifically telling you what it is, it's basically you follow a an old poor farmer and his daughter through their everyday lives and they're sort of living through, I guess what you could call is the end of the world where... All, all of the uh, all of the animals are dying. There's sort of nobody around, and you just sort of follow them as they go through this kind of just meaningless life of waking up in the morning trying to get their horse to eat something, and they're unsuccessful, and then going out to the well to get water and bringing it back inside, and then eating a single boiled potato for dinner, um, all shot in like a stark black and white with you know, these incredible long takes. The, the movie is two and a half hours long, but there's only about, I think it's about 70 actual shots in the film, which probably, I mean, I'm not going to do the math here. You can do it yourself, but I think it evens out to something like four or five minutes per shot. So you are just sitting with these characters for a long amount of time. And there's often very little dialogue spoken, but it's, I mean, I don't want to say it's a punishing experience. It's definitely challenging and it's definitely miserable to see them there but there are moments of sort of sort of tragic black humor um there's some a few interesting moments of drama but ultimately you just get this sense of like a world that is that is ended and 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 these these people are just sort of going on about their daily life which i think is a as i'm saying it now i mean i just that just feels like the world we live in now (laughs) like oh what a bleak what a bleak idea but i mean it's, isn't it kind of true in a way? Like I'll get to it a bit later because I, I think I'll lead up to it, but I have sort of a little bit of a, a thought about some of the more biological realities that we're going through. But yeah, the the film, The Turin Horse, like it, it kind of takes film beyond just the aesthetic. You're not just being barraged with imagery and as a substitute for meaning, which is what you get with, you know, online internet content, which is what you get with TV um, and even a lot of like mainstream cinema now. And like, again, let me point out, I love mainstream cinema and I do watch TV shows. It's not to say that things that are fast and bright and flashy are necessarily bad. It's just that if that's all you're experiencing, then that's a very like, even though that's a large percentage of what we see in the world now, it, it kind of makes you only think and imagine one way. You can sort of only imagine sort of one version of the future. That's what I feel like anyway. And thinking about this, like, 
you know, the idea of entertainment, uh, catharsis, um, and, you know, our consumption habits. I, I watched another film the other night, and I think I spoke about this in my first Andre Tarkovsky episode. Uh, it's called Funny Games by Michael Haneke. And it's, I mean, I don't want to sort of say what it's about, but it's, if I could say what the, what the message is, it's, it's about how um, we, we turn things into consumption products. And in this instance, the, the thing that Michael Haneke is most concerned with is our role as consumers in turning violence into a consumption product. And to kind of show this off, he creates like quite a stark um, cinematography where everything is quite sort of naturalistic. And then there are these moments of like deep violence that if they were approached in say like a Tarantino film, who he uses as kind of a, a exemplary of this idea of like f- fetishistic violence and the sort of catharsis we get from it, um, rather than sort of like showing off the violence and like these, you know, choreographed beautiful scenes or like really uh, witty dialogue or whatever, he basically shows the act of violence off screen and then we sit with the characters who deal with the violence and the trauma of it for like minutes at a time. There is a scene, a shot sort of halfway through the film where a horrifying thing happens. And in any other movie with any other filmmaker, this probably wouldn't sit with you. Like you would probably, and I guess what he's pointing out here is that if that happened in another way, you would probably get some kind of like sick catharsis from it. And and I don't mean that judgmentally. I just mean that as like, that's just how it is. That's how we've begun to interpret violence on screen and in media. Um, I'm not, I'm not um, sort of saying one way or another, whether I agree with it or not, because I haven't come to that conclusion. In fact, I hadn't thought about it at all until I watched this film. And then it almost gave me nightmares, not the actual film itself, but just thinking about my own sort of role uh, in turning violence into a consumption product, which just, you know, basically, basically allows us to not really process like the depth of it and not really understand what violence means. And because of this, like, because of the way that one, he doesn't show us the violence. So we don't get to sort of have that libidinal, like, I guess, like orgasmic pleasure, I guess, not that I'm saying like that's what we think we want, but that's just the way that the media has kind of become is that why do we watch horror films? Because there is some kind of pleasure in it. If it was purely grueling, if it was purely horrible, I don't think we would really watch them. I don't think many people would really watch them. And that's why I think it's really fascinating the way that he portrays violence in such a naturalistic way and, you know, removes our ability to actually see the violence. So we don't get to have that sort of, I guess, pleasure from seeing it. And then when he makes us sit with the, the traumatic aftermath of it, you just feel horrible. Like I just felt so horrible in a way that I hadn't in a long time. And it's funny, I was reading about his films about a year ago, I think, and I hadn't, I'd sort of heard of a couple of them, but I hadn't come across him and I didn't know much about him and sort of his philosophies on, you know, the way that the media you know, the way that we interact with media and how media shapes our relationship to things like violence and sexuality and and kind of turns us into these animalistic beings, I guess, uh, beyond our humanity. 
But I, when I was reading about them, I got a sense of like, this is not the most horrific work in, in the sense of like, you know, it's not like it's the most gory film. It's not like it's the most shocking thing I've ever heard of, but rather his treatment of the subject and, and the stark way that he presents them without any sense of like, like I said, without any sense of pleasure, without some like fast, exciting cutting or, or any attempts to sort of arouse a libidinal emotion from us. I just had a feeling it was going to be quite shocking. And I watched it the other night and I didn't really know what to expect. His original funny games from 1997. And yeah, it just left me uh, bereft. I was just, I still, it, it still has left something with me. And this is, you know, almost four or five days later. And you think about that and, and then I contrast that with the, you know, up until recently, the sort of my, I guess you could say like the things that I would consume the most would be, uh, you know, YouTube videos, podcasts, and then maybe music. And then from there it would be TV shows and then it would be films and then definitely books after that. And then theater less than books. So you can sort of see like in terms of that, um, hierarchy of where my like consumption habits were, I could see that, you know, well, I can see now, like there was a reason why I had no cultural memory of anything that I consumed. There was a reason that, um, my ideas were completely stagnant, that I just had no ideas creatively that I had. I felt like I had nothing to say is because I wasn't engaging with, you know, any type of meaningful artwork and, I look at my relationship with it now and like I've been trying to, you know, I've spoken about before how I, um, you know, I haven't been on social media and at this point it's probably like six months or so. Uh, and, but I kind of replaced that with, um, you know, entertainment products as like another way of just getting that sense of like frictionless pleasure. And I'm, I'm really trying to limit that now. So I've, I've been making attempts to go like a couple days without YouTube and that's been quite um, useful. I think it, again, it's been challenging. It's like, you know, if you're quitting cigarettes, if you're trying to quit some kind of drug, that's literally what you're doing. You're trying to quit dopamine. <laughs> like it's fucking challenging, but it has been useful and I am sort of getting there. I mean, you know, I don't, and I don't want to sort of go hard line on myself and say like, you can never use YouTube again because one, I don't think that's realistic. And two, I think they do have their place, you know, whether it's for, um, you know, research purposes or whether you do want to just go and get some entertainment. Like I'm not, I'm not anti entertainment, but I do think that if entertainment is the, the metric by which we are judging things and that which we assign value to things, which it is, that's the, you know, like I said, that's the sort of prevailing ideology, whether it's, um, explicit or not, then, I mean, you know, my thoughts, look at the results, like look at, look at how maybe you yourself feel. I've expressed how I feel. I mean, again, I'm not going to assume what anyone's going through. I, I don't want to purely project, um, even though all of this is a projection and any type of, um, assessment of the outside world is usually a projection unless you're you know, strongly socializing with people, but even that we don't have, you know, we don't have a strong sense of socialization. Part of it is because, you know, the, the reaction to and fallout from the coronavirus, but it was already like that. I think if anything, my own sense of socialization has increased after 
you know, the lockdowns uh, increased after, you know, everything kind of got completely shaken up. And I know other people share this sentiment and are looking to kind of escape the void of the internet, especially if you're living in a country where, you know, unlike Australia, like somewhere like America or the UK, like lockdowns haven't really stopped. Like there hasn't really been a time where, I mean, there has been times where there haven't been lockdowns, but what I'm saying is like, we are, we are much more open in Australia than other places are. And I think it drives you insane when all you're doing is just, you know, dealing with these sort of like ephemeral cultural products that just go down way too easily and you don't actually sort of take anything from it. And you just look, look at your life and like, this is where I was at. Even pre-COVID, you just go, where did my time go? What am I doing? Why am I not spending my time more wisely? Well, the first part of it, as I, as I am going through is disconnecting from these, these media sources that are ultimately not bringing you any value in life. And I'm not just saying joy. I'm just saying not bringing you any value, whether it is, um, you know, actually being some kind of entertainment, but also something that you take something from, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to learn or have a philosophical experience every time you step out your front door. I I hope that's not something that I proliferate, but it's just my area of focus. Like I, I hope you know that I'm not a, I'm not someone who understands everything about the world and every single topic. I'm just relating this to what I see is like, contemporary art, contemporary cinema, the cultural landscape around us, cultural production, um, and, and how I guess we can, we can sort of, um, shape our lives and move our lives in a better direction. And, you know, with, with more intentional processes, more intentional thought patterns. And, um, you know, I can feel that for me, it is getting better. Like my understanding of like, other people I think is increasing. My ability to articulate myself has been increasing. Um, my understanding of the language of the art form that I'm interested in, that I, I seek to make work within cinema, you know, film culture, I am understanding that better. I am putting myself in, in, in the, uh, putting myself in, in situations where I'm learning from people who I would deem as masters of the craft through, you know, not only watching their films, but writing about them, thinking about them. And I think that's the first part. And then the second part is synthesizing those experiences and actually creating something from it. And that's, that's where I'm at now is like beginning to understand like, okay, my consumption habits are definitely improving Um, And I feel like they're heading in a more productive and useful direction, not only for my art creation, but for me as a person, for me as someone who, you know, interacts with other people who, who's beginning to understand like what I want out of this life and maybe what, who, who I am, if that makes sense, like beginning to understand the self a little bit better and being able to express that really strongly and and I don't mean in a sort of dominant way but just like in a strong way to other people to tell them like hey this is uh actually this is who I am and this is what I value and you know if we align with that that's great if we don't then you know maybe here's a point of friction and here's a here's a conflict that we need to resolve I've been coming across more conflict in my life lately I think because I'm starting to put myself out there in that way 
Um, but I'm also dealing with it in ways that I think are better in terms of like having honest and difficult conversations. And I guess that's not completely art. That's more like my, I guess, like approach that I'm taking. And it's not like a pure doctrine. It's not like I wake up every single day, but it's, it's everything. It's, um, you know, my awareness of my physical body that I try and have. It's my, um, my increase in physical exercise because I have such a, a sedentary job at the moment being a commercial filmmaker most of the time you're just sitting at a computer so it's um you know changing up those habits it's uh me trying to meditate every day or if not at least at least if not meditate just try and sit still or lie down for 20 minutes and just um you know screen free no stimulus no books no writing nothing because that's a, a real a real struggle point for me is like, okay, if I turn the screen off, I still feel like I need to do something. So maybe I'll go and write in my journal or maybe I'll just, um, you know, go and exercise or go and do a chore. And like those things are great, you know, take care of your house, get your affairs in order, clean your room, make your bed. All those things are important, but it's also important to just sit in your body and to feel, to feel yourself and to feel your, your presence in the world. And remember that you're not just, you know, you're not just a brain. You're not just a thinking mind. You are a, a biological being as well. And that's important to take care of those things. It's important to have a, a, uh, what's the best word? A, I don't want to say symbiosis because that is kind of like two parts working together, but I guess, I guess that could work. Symbiosis. Uh, I don't know, just like harmony, you know, harmony between your, your mind and your body and to try and just turn your brain off for a bit. Um, I think all of those things right there are the reasons that I'm trending towards a a more, a lifestyle where I'm, I don't want to just say happier, but like definitely happier in general, but more capable of like pursuing things that I want to do, more capable of having the types of conversations that I want to have, more capable of shaping my own life in the way that I want being aware of myself, not repressing my emotions or, um, you know, things that I'm worried or anxious about, but being able to bring them out and to, to talk about them or to express them through artistic means or, or whatever it may be, you know, there are so many facets to it, but this intentional, more intentional lifestyle that I've been speaking about and my approach to it, I, I can see that it is starting to have a good effect. It's not like it's like, you know, I've gone from zero to a hundred and it's like the the greatest life I've ever lived. There's still a lot to work through. There's still many stages, um, but that doesn't scare me. And I think in the past it did. I think I was unable to imagine a better future and I guess like unable to really t- allow myself to pursue the things that I think I want to pursue and to explore them and to understand them and to you know, be honest with myself, like being honest with myself about uh, commercial filmmaking and how it just hasn't been working and how it hasn't been a good fit and, you know, how how I just need to have some kind of other relationship with filmmaking where it is an artistic pursuit, where I am bringing the art to it, where I am, you know, actually invested in it because I've just been not invested in commercial filmmaking. I just haven't been because I detest it and... I'm, uh, you know, I've spoken about it before, the ding, 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 take a shot every time I say that. 
I am happy to have realized that, you know, and the other side of it, yeah, is, you know, the first side is like changing your consumption habits, I guess, and like designing a more intentional lifestyle. The second part of that is actually channeling all of that work and, and that effort and, you know, research, knowledge, understanding, experience with art, all the films you're watching, all the thinking and writing you're doing, all the sketches, the painting, the, the whatever it is that you're doing into your actual artistic practice itself. And that's where, that's the next hill for me to climb, I guess. It's like I've climbed, I've climbed the first mountain and it's like, wow, I've come so far. This is so great. But once you get to the, the top of the first mountain, you realize, oh, there's a way bigger mountain beyond this, which is actually synthesizing all of that into creation. And that's exciting too, but I definitely will say that that's where I'm struggling at the moment, but that's okay because I'm closer to that than I was before. I'm closer to making the things. And while I don't want to feel like a podcast is a substitute for, you know, writing, filming, editing, and, and, and distributing a film or some kind of, um, you know, visual artwork, it's a step in the right direction. And at least I'm thinking about these things now, at least I'm starting to move towards that. And it's just having a bit of like self-acceptance as well. And just realizing like, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day. You're not going to make a film in a day. You're not going to um, change your life in a day. It's going to be a sustained effort. You know, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Insert whatever metaphor you would like to have here. And I'm realizing that now. And I do feel a little bit of dissatisfaction because I feel like I wish I was more able to just start expressing but then I think about my reality and like what I'm going through at the moment. And I'm still finishing up client work. I'm still working through the sort of like large amount of work that, um, that I began a fair while ago, but it just, there is just that much of it that I'm still going through it that I need to get through that first. And I need to, you know, just continue chipping away at this lifestyle, continue my exercise, continue my podcast, my journaling process, continue my, um, you know, intentional art experiences, all of these things and the rest will come. It will come and when I, and I will create space for it, you know, and then I will start to build up a habit. I can get to a place where I'm like David Lynch, you know, every day I'm just going out and I'm like, this is the idea and this is what I'm working on. And then if that changes, I work on something else and, you know, I'm getting closer, closer and closer every day. And I think if you, are looking for something similar, you just have to recognize that it will take time that, you know, you can't do it overnight. I mean, if you can, then that's awesome. If you're suddenly able to switch gears from where you've been at, where you maybe you're dissatisfied with where you've been at and you're wanting to move towards something, something different or something better. If you're able to just switch gears like that, fucking awesome. That's great for the rest of us, for who it will take time for. And, you know, I like sharing these sort of candid thoughts and experiences of mine because at the very least, I know they help me <laughs> to just get them out and to listen back to. Um, at the very most, if it can help, you know, any other person out there or at least to get you thinking in some way or get you experiencing or expressing in some way, then that's awesome too. You know, I have no presumptions that that will be the case or that it deserves to be the case. 
it merely just aligns with me. I think that this is what I'm going through. And when I express it to certain other people that they find some kind of, some kind of solidarity in it. And, you know, I'm glad for that. So I do have a few more little points here that I'll sort of go through, but I guess you can see my thinking at the moment and like where I'm at with stuff. I will say this is the most relaxed I've been on a podcast episode so far. Usually, um, I don't know. It's funny. Like sometimes you just know you're just in this like weird Zen moment where you're like, I'm just going to be able to talk without looking at my notes. And it's just been like 40 minutes and I've read like two of my notes. (laughs) But yes, to uh, elaborate a little bit further on the idea of like, you know, entertainment, entertainment is catharsis. You know, it's got me thinking a lot about how like the internet is so frictionless that we can just simulate reality within it and sort of all of the uh, feedback loops that we get in reality from like relationships, but there's actually no like social quality to it. And like it's purely become, well, not purely, but it's strongly becoming an escape for people, a fantasy for people to live in because they're not happy with what they see around them. They're not happy with the outside world, but I think that's such a trap because I think a lot of people are not happy with what they see online either. If anything, it's worse than the condition you're in. And like, if anything, that that quitting social media and like trying to be more mindful of how I navigate the internet and how often I'm on it, if, if anything, that has shown me um, the reality of the conditions I'm living in, the reality of my body, like I said, the reality of my house, the reality of the community around me, what's out there, what other ways are there to, to interact with people, what's really important, how do you actually feel after you spend like three hours texting with someone, do you feel like you're understood, do you feel like you've understood them, do you feel like they care, uh, I'm, not, I'm not making a judgment either way, but um, these are things that I've struggled with, with those kind of relationships, especially if it's something as like, you know, one-sided as posting a, a post on Instagram and then people like commenting on it. I don't think it's really helpful like socially for the etiquette of the internet to be people just agreeing with everything that you do online. I don't think that's helpful for you. Not necessarily that I think people should be like yelling at you or telling you you're awful either. I don't think the extremes of like internet discourse are particularly useful or um, in fact, I think they're like socially corrosive. And I think about in real life, if I had a disagreement with someone, I probably wouldn't instantly go and yell at them. You know, I probably wouldn't instantly have that impulse. And I guess I'm like developing patience. And even if someone does contact me through like texting me or whatever it is, I'm developing a sense of like, okay, I don't have to reply to this person straight away just because they're living in their time stream doesn't mean they can just hop into mine when I have plans, when I have other things going on. Because really it is too frictionless to just message someone and say, hey, um, I need this from you. And like, I understand, but I also understand when someone doesn't get back to me instantly. I also understand that some things are going to be acceptable to me and some things are not. But I do also feel like there's like a, uh, a, a merging of, and I've talked about this before, ding, 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 um, of sort of like professional and, and personal relationships to the point of like a lot of my friends, I think were just purely because of transactional relationships, but it takes on this sort of like weird extra 
level. Whereas like what I preferred about just pure clients who you don't know from a bar of soap is that they will just tell you what they want and it's really easy to just deal within the realm of the transaction. But then when you're working with sort of, um, you know, friends that want something from you and that's kind of why they keep in touch. I mean, I've started to just tell people, hey, I'm not doing this anymore. And then I just don't really hear from them anymore. And that's fine. <laughs> like at first I was kind of cut up about it, but I've realized it's kind of freeing because you're just basically removing these like extraneous things from your life, these extraneous relationships that were built on something that no longer exists. And that's fine. You know, not everything is permanent in life. Not everyone is your best friend, but I, I do think that the internet kind of gives you this idea that, um, everything is that way that you can live in this fantasy land where everyone's your best friend and you see their content and they see your content. And I don't know, <laughs> to me, it just really got me down, but, um, I'm glad to sort of be moving past that, you know, and having more intentional relationships with it or, um, you know, approaching people in, in a more understanding way. And I guess that like uh, another thing is like, as, as um, Chris Crawford said in his Dosing Culture essays, like, you know, the content on the internet also just like goes really, goes down really smoothly and leaves no imprint. Um, whereas like more material or time-based mediums, so I'm talking, you know, painting, sculpture, theater, film, uh, literature, novels, uh, they are more angular, more difficult to swallow. And because of that, they stick with you long after you view them. And that's what I was talking about earlier with, you know, Balatar's The Turin Horse and Michael Haneke's Funny Games is like these things by nature of being longer, by nature of being um, requiring more of my uh, attention and actually trying to say something as opposed to just being someone standing in front of me in a five minute YouTube video, just kind of talking at me with some bright flashy things that, that they're not really trying to say something they stick with you for longer because they are harder to swallow and, and to kind of create my own uh, little metaphor here and, and bear with me. But I just wanted to sort of think about that idea of like consumption. You know, we talk about consumerism, we talk about consumption. And when we talk about that, I think like it's funny that we use that that word because we're purely talking about like feasting, like the actual act of eating. But we never talk about the idea of digestion. So like the concept of cultural digestion, I think is like being erased and just leaving us with this idea of consumption. So if we're just consuming things, but we're not digesting them, if we don't have a language for understanding, if we're not forming our own opinions, if we're maybe watching a movie or a TV series and then going straight to someone on YouTube or reading a blog to tell me what it all means, we're not actually taking anything in. We're just sort of you know, skimming off the surface. And I guess as like a really crude analogy, we no longer digest things and then transform them. Like, you know, ideas of culture, we're, we're no longer transforming them through the process of a lengthy gestation, which is, you know, kind of disgusting when you think about it, because I guess what I'm saying is art is shit and piss. That's not really what I'm saying. But I mean, there is a transformation. There is a creation of a new thing. I'm not saying that that's what I think of art. I just think if we're going to use the uh, analogy of consumption, I think we need to think more about digesting and transformation as well. 
And like, all we're doing is consumption and regurgitation like this. And this to me, I think is like one of the things that kind of contributes to this like widespread, um, I guess like manifestation of like psychological crises that people are going through. Like you can kind of read at length about this. I've talked to a therapist about it as well and said like, are you seeing more people present with, you know, um, psychological issues with, uh, depression, uh, anxiety, you know, like problems in their life due to social media. And the therapist replied to me with the answer. Yes, absolutely. Like, so it's not just purely sort of like an abstract concept of research. And I think we know this from also people talking about it a lot and like the amount that people talk about depression and anxiety, but that there's a kind of gulf between feeling that and then doing something about it. And I guess that's where I feel like the internet as like a place for us to put all of our desires and all of our, um, you know, all of our expectations in the world and like the idea that we can live like a better world through the internet. But it's a, it's a pseudo experience. You know, it's not actually happening. We are feeling the feelings. As I said, we are getting like the feedback loop from it, but it's not, it's not real. Like we're not feeling it within our body. We're only feeling it within our mind. And that disconnect I think is what leads to like the psychological crises that we have. And, and more deeply, I think like a spiritual crisis that, I mean, I've kind of spoken a little bit about it before, but I feel like I'm now beginning to understand the usefulness of having some kind of spiritual connection to your body, to your, to the earth, to people around you. And that doesn't have to mean signing up for whatever, you know, religious um, services around you, but rather to have an awareness, like a, a, a oneness with within yourself and those around you and like an understanding and an empathy and to develop from there, I think like a towel, like a, a way of like creating um, a better world through the practice of, of your work and through your understanding and, and the things that you realize. And so that's, that's where I think like art truly comes in is through that, that idea of like practice through understanding, practice through empathy, practice through wanting to, I guess, make the world a better place. Like we're losing our imagination. Like as kids, I think we're so great at just following our imagination and, you know, letting our creativity take hold. But then as we get older, I, I think that, and, and I heard this on um, a cinema cartography film about the, the beauty of animation as like manifesting, um, you know, like just like pure imagination in like visual form that, our intellectual side takes over. And I think that's from where a lot of our misery comes from. You know, our imagination is the thing which allows us to like shape new forms of expression and new worlds and new societies. But it just feels like everything is in stasis right now because we're not digesting anything. And so much like cultural production is just made to be tasted and then spat out. And I I mentioned earlier, but I wanted to talk about sort of like some biological implication implications, but um, across the world, like people are having sex less and they're like less considering having children. And I think like this is not completely it, but I just think because of like the world and the culture that we have around us, no one can imagine the world beyond themselves or like beyond this moment. No one can imagine like a future. And I know that we are in a moment, I guess, of like 
physical, emotional, spiritual, psychological crisis, things like uh, the climate, um, you know, uh, joblessness, uh, this coronavirus situation that just seems never ending. But, you know, we're, we're turning towards the same cultural products that are making us hyper aware of these things to the point where we're feeling like we're responsible for it. And like, again, like without prescribing anything political or ideological here, and like, if you do want to talk about that stuff, reach out and we can chat further about it. But like, we're turning to the same cultural products. We're turning on the news. We're watching the same YouTube where we're t- we've turned politics into entertainment. You know, news is entertainment. Real life is entertainment. And how are we going to imagine a better world when all we're doing is turning the things in front of us into the imagination of the world? Like if, if, if the highest imagination we can have is a TV show about people living in the current world where nothing is changing or a dystopia that just says something about the world that we're in now, you know, and I'm not trying to say that like everything we create should be some kind of perfect utopianism, but how can we imagine a better world? How can we imagine a better world if that's all we're consuming, if we're not thinking about things in a longer cultural timeline if we're not thinking about like the world as it was and the world where it's come from as ways of shaping like where the where the world could be you know turning to history turning to culture turning to art actual art not not just content of course people are going to start thinking like okay well i can't have children i i can't start a family because the world's going to end and it's going to be horrible and it's like well There's no guarantee of that. There's no guarantee of tomorrow. You're right. But there's no guarantee that we're living through the apocalypse. And I think for me, whilst again, I'm not prescribing here, but for me, logging off all of this shit, at least in some way, at least limiting your relationship with it and being aware of your relationship with it is allowing me to maybe see something grander. At the very least, it's allowing me to read a fucking book, you know, which I think if you want to talk about imagining future possibilities, I think a lot of people have just given up on the idea of something as simple as that, given up on the idea of something as simple as watching a movie rather than listening to a podcast (laughs) or watching a five minute YouTube video. And it's, it's weird because it's it's really strange because people will say like, I don't have time for that or they feel like they don't have time for it or they feel like they don't have the capacity for it. And if they feel it, it's probably true. But that again is like a statement of like, well, I can't improve or change things. And I guess my message to you is that's bullshit. Uh, you can't. And I believe that you can. I believe in you to be able to make a change if that's what you feel like you need. Again, if you're someone who only reads books and you're listening to this podcast to hear what all the hip young kids are talking about, then, you know, ignore my advice. (laughs) But I mean, you just got to start somewhere. For me, it was writing down on a fucking, in a journal, like, you know, or on my, on my note app notion, watch a hundred movies this year, read 50 books. I didn't, I did the first one. I didn't do the second one, but I'm not beating myself up about it because I read a few books. I read four, I think, which is a, a dismal effort compared to 50. But as I have said before, that's four more than I read in the years previous. So you can start somewhere. You can do something. You can make some kind of change. 
you can change your consumption habits, I guess. You can move past this idea that everything has to be cathartic, that everything has to be entertaining because I think it is contributing to the whole within ourselves, the void that we all feel um, if we really think about it, which is, a, again, that's the spiritual crisis and I don't have a response for it other than living a more meaningful existence through like actually listening to yourself listening to the world around you, listening to your body, creating the world for yourself and confronting the reality that like it's all going to end one day, you know, that may be scary. It's going to end one day. And it's not like I've come to terms with those things. I mean, I'm only 26 years old, but I do think about my mortality. I do think about these things. And if you let them grow in the dark, they will overcome you. They will, they will contribute to your shadow self and they will, they will take over and you will live in fear and you will live in anxiety and you will be ruled by these things. But it doesn't have to be that way. I know art is not the be all and end all. I know it's not the only thing. In fact, I think, well, I said it, it was the first thing I said on the first episode of this podcast Andrei Tarkovsky's quote, art is born from an imperfect world. If the world were perfect, we would not need art. And art is like a way, is one way, I think, a very meaningful way toward a better world, toward a world where, I mean, I don't know what a perfect world looks like, but I think it would look pretty different to the one we're in now. I think it would look a little bit different to, no, it would look significantly different to the suffering, the inequality, you know, the, the ascendancy of like, um, the ruling classes of capitalism to like have more wealth than anyone has ever had before. While more people starve and suffer than ever any other time, I guess, in history, you know, it's not that there haven't been poor people and, and people who've, who've suffered and died before, but it's just that the, the gulf between, those who have and those who have not is so significant that most people actually fall into the category of those who have not. I think about like, I mean, the, I think he's a, I think he's maybe a philosopher. I'm not sure. Francis Fukuyama. I've not read his work. Um, from what I understand, I don't think I would appreciate it very much, but he glibly proclaimed in the 1990s, after after the fall of the Soviet Union, I guess like the ascendancy of capitalism as this global ideology, um, ruling ideology that we all live under, he, he called it the end of history. And I think in his mind, he thought, what a fantastic thing that capitalism has triumphed over, you know, the idea of communism and the free market reigns. And I mean, in some ways, I think he's right that we kind of are living at the end of history. If you think about the way that we collectively and um, individually process the world that we live in, it's like the world has already ended. We live in the world of the Turin horse. The world has ended, but um, we're just still going and we don't have a vision for what's better. We're not working towards what that could be. For me, I, I know that my usefulness will come from things like this from creativity from imagination through creating things it's not that i think that one artwork can change the world um, but in concert the experience of artwork the experience of people coming together and 
demanding more and going out and getting more and working together to do that. You know, I, I think about like, we couldn't have like the Soviet, um, the Soviet revolution now. It, it has to take some kind of other form. But at that time, like that they were, the Soviets were uniquely, sorry, the Bolsheviks were uniquely positioned and understanding of, you know, Marxist theory and looking at the conditions around them and the state of um, Russia and, you know, the state of Europe as it was about to enter into the um, sort of awful bloodletting and completely pointless World War One, and seeing that something needed to change and then realizing that they had to be the ones to do it. And that feels like a lot of pressure, but I, I think that the only reason it succeeded is because they had other people around them. They had... Um, a consciousness like uh, the the people of Russia had like a consciousness and understanding of their position in the world. They were miserable. They were destitute. They were poor farmers. They were, um, you know, sort of lower middle class men being shipped off to war for no goddamn reason, um, and, and being slaughtered for for um, for the benefit of like an aristocracy that couldn't give two shits about them. And they didn't have diversions in the way that we do now. They didn't have all this cathartic entertainment that allowed them to channel their angst and misery and suffering into watching a fucking TV show about someone playing putt-putt golf, you know. And and I realized that I can only sound like an old angry man, you know, just sort of decrying um, the atrocity of like, culture but i think on some level a lot of people feel this but i think we don't know what to do with it because i felt it for a long time i just couldn't articulate it and that's the difference between now and 120 years ago is that we don't have a connected consciousness if we want to talk about an idea of like a sort of working class movement and to get political here for a moment a working class movement that might um, come together to change the conditions of the world that we are in, we first need to at least understand where we're at now. And I think most people or a lot of people maybe don't completely understand because they either don't have the language for it or they don't, um, they're not talking to other people about it. And I mean, I don't have the answers again, but I just think that we're in a different situation and that's why it can seem so difficult for the world to change because we have so much distraction. We have so much between us and like the realization of like our actualized selves and then um, actual communion, you know, community with other people. And this is because in large part, one reason, um, and this comes from that dominant capitalist ideology that everything has become entertainment now. So everything is a way to, you know, um, just blow off steam as opposed to actually um, coming to some kind of conflict with the forces in the world that create the world in this, um, what I think personally, terrible way. You know, like I said before, news and politics, like even real life is, is become entertainment. Like we get this libidinal pleasure from watching like people eat and watching people clean their rooms or go to work or just like um just like be there in their apartment and it's like why don't we just do that ourselves you know because it's not entertaining 
because it is actual work, because it is actually more challenging to um, cook food and eat it than watch someone cook food and eat it. It is more challenging to watch uh, to to clean your room than it is to watch someone clean their room. And isn't that such like a strange thing? Like that's like the narrow aperture of the kind of things that people like to watch is like someone in a house because we, we, on some level, I think people, I guess in my generation definitely feel like, Oh, we might never own a house. We might never have a nice place to live. We might never have anything better. So we just continue to consume the type of like content that just kind of shows like what our aspirations are. I mean, it's a tough one. It's a dilemma, but it's like, again, like I don't want to pretend that I know the answer, but to me, it feels like it lies in that understanding first and then expression, like true expression. Doesn't take much to film yourself cleaning your house. Doesn't take much to watch that. But it does take something to craft to craft something more detailed, to actually to actually craft it, you know, to not just pick up a camera and just sort of like I mean, what am I doing right now? I'm just talking into a microphone. Again, like I don't want to say like this is all pointless or I think that there's no value to be had here, but rather this type of content should be the least of your interaction with the creative art world. And if you get to a point where, and this might be, I don't know, it might be a bit silly, but if you get to a point where you're like that and you're getting to a better place and you just are like, well, I can't listen to this podcast anymore. It's like, what is it giving me? That's probably a good thing. Like I can't, I can't sit here and say like, no, but you still need to listen to me. You know, like, I mean, you can absolutely still support me. You can absolutely still share it with other people. You can absolutely recommend it. You can, you know, purchase a membership, whatever it is that you think is valuable if you get something from it. But if this helps you move towards that direction that I guess I'm moving towards and you can start to imagine a better future for yourself and then maybe for other people down the line, like, I said, you can't do it in one day. Don't think about, I mean, don't concern yourself with how we're going to change climate change right now. Start with cleaning your room. Start like Jordan Peterson said, like, I don't know if I agree with him on everything, but I think there's some merit to the simplicity of what he's saying is like, you need to get your affairs in order. I think Voltaire said, you need to uh, tend to your own garden first and if I misattributed that quote, I apologize. It was told to me by someone else, but there's like merit to that. It's such a cliche, but there's merit to it. And if you can focus on that, if you can focus on the self first and not in a selfish way, but in a way of like truly understanding who you are and you know, how you can factor into this world. How could you, how could you factor into contributing to a better society? You might think that it's going and doing like a hunger strike by yourself at, you know, the local park where no one really gives a shit and you're not really actually helping anything. Or it might be getting together with a group of other people and like forming some kind of, uh, you like a group of artists who just go out and just paint together, you know, building some kind of social bonds, um, building a garden in your backyard, like whatever it needs to be, you know, building a, building a shed by yourself or, 
or developing some kind of craft or just working on your art, like explore that and understand. Don't think that because the internet tells you that this is the way you should do things, that that's the way you should do it, including me, you know, if you want to be an activist and go chain yourself to things and that truly feels inside you the most useful and productive way of like improving the world, then sure, you know, be safe. I wish you all the best. But if you feel like what you're good at is like what I feel like I'm good at is creating and like sharing these kind of thoughts then pursue that and, and really give yourself a good go to do it. You know, don't, don't hinder your progress by, just consuming mindless shit all the time. Don't, don't allow yourself to just purely commodify, you know, yourself as a product and view, don't just view yourself as a product that's inferior to like more successful people that are products in the marketplace. Like I know I don't want that. Like I want something more than that. I want it for me, but I want it for other people as well. I want to see people have that sense of like, understanding within themselves that sense of knowing the direction forward or knowing knowing what they're good at and and spending their time doing that or if they're not good at it but they are deeply interested in it that they will give themselves the chance to do it you know maybe you did dancing as a kid and you loved it and then you got older and you learned about the world and then you thought well why would I do something like that why would I do something that maybe I'm not that good at? Because now you over-intellectualize everything and you don't want to do things that might be challenging. What if you did knitting? What if you, what if you made music? Whatever it may be, just take that time. You know, build that own intentional lifestyle for yourself. Take that time and figure it out. And I think that is the way forward for us. Slightly somber note. Um, but I think I'll end it there. I don't have like a, uh, a grand conclusion, I guess, but I think to summarize, and I guess like I used entertainment as a launching off point, but to, I don't know if I specifically mentioned it, but like that idea of catharsis, like you don't have to give people catharsis in your art. You don't have to give them pleasure. It doesn't have to be that way. Like, like I said, the most meaningful art I've watched recently has withheld all sense of pleasure for a lengthy duration. And I mean, if you want to have a good starting point, just off the top of my head, something that you could watch that I think will challenge you in an interesting way, um, but might be a good way to transition from just like watching internet content and that actually speaks about all of these kind of things like about the internet, about the world as it is, like the sort of the dark underbelly of society as it were, but it's uh, David Lynch's Twin Peaks, The Return. Now this, this is a, a series he did 25 years after his original um, Twin Peaks series, which I would, I would say you should go and watch all of it from the start. Um, the first season is amazing. The first half of the second season is amazing. Uh, his and co-writer Mark Frost's involvement towards the second end of the second season uh, was quite limited. So it can be um, at times quite uh, self-parodying and uh, just it's quite interesting. I, I don't know how I particularly feel about it. I don't love, love it. But in saying that, 
when um, he brought it back 25 years later, he only did it um, because I guess when he first did it in the 90s, him and Mark Frost, there was a lot of studio uh, overhead in terms of like, I don't want to say they completely interfered, but TV was a certain thing. TV was made to be episodic and to give people catharsis and an ending at the end of every episode. And Twin Peaks tried to do something really different where it had an evolving story with like interlocking mysteries and you begin to like unravel like this deep and mysterious and at times quite dark heart of this small town Washington city called Twin Peaks and all of the characters within it and you spend time with them and you grow to empathize and love and detest and understand and misunderstand them in many different ways and and it was quite revolutionary but because it was still on um you know mainstream television in the early 90s there was still an expectation that mysteries would be solved that answers would be given and david lynch isn't someone who necessarily feels like he needs to explain things and that's why i think his um his work stands as like a such a unique Um, body of work but also an amazing way to approach art creation where um, you he's not operating from a premise of like okay is the audience going to understand this we need to show it to people to make sure they understand it but rather he is he operates on some kind of like dream logic some kind of like uh, metaphorical representations of things and honestly there's nothing like it and sometimes it can be quite alienating, but similar to, similar to, you know, the Turin horse and Michael Haneke's work and Andrei Tarkovsky's work, um, and and other practitioners in, in that realm, um, it sits with you and it stays with you. And I remember when I watched, um, finally watched Twin Peaks: The Return last year. Um, it's an eighteen-hour miniseries, but he has said that it's like one long movie. But I mean, good luck trying to watch it all in one go in 18 hours. But it's so interesting the way that it unfolded and the way that it plays with your expectations and the way that it kind of makes you realize again, like what you are watching and like thinking about your relationship with the media that you're consuming. And like, I won't say any more than that other than when I first watched it, I felt like I wasn't sure if I even liked it. And then at the end of it, I was like, I think that's the best thing I've ever seen. And it's a television series, but again, it's not like any other television series. If if we were to say there is any type of experimentation and avant-garde within that um, within that realm of you know purely commercialized artistic creation, that's it. It's Twin Peaks: The Return. So if you if you're in Australia, if you've got Stan, um, you can watch the first two seasons and then Twin Peaks The Return. It's all on there. Between them, I would highly recommend watching the film Twin Peaks uh, Fire Walk With Me, which is sort of like a prequel to the first two seasons, but definitely don't watch it first because it will completely uh, give away everything. But yeah, I think you will get a lot from that. And I think maybe that's a really cool starting point. And, um, you know, if you want some more ideas on things that you know i recommend you watch or um starting points for different artworks so you just want to talk about any of these kind of topics with me feel free to get in touch um, through the contact form on my website i'm always open to chatting to people you know um, i really do appreciate face-to-face conversation so um 
it doesn't necessarily have to be a podcast episode, but if you're open to discussing something, you have something you want to talk about, let me know. We'll have a chat, like an actual like video chat or a phone call, or if you're around in person, we can catch up. That would be awesome. But yeah, thank you so much for listening to The Mirror. I'm uh, super stoked on this episode. I think even if it was rambly, which I'm not sure if it was, I don't really know. I'll leave that up to you. That's for you to decide. Um, I think it really did a good job of getting out what I'm feeling at the moment. And I've, like I said, I've never felt more zen while doing this. Um, The time has just flown by and I'm super stoked about that. So yeah, I hope you all have a great week and a great weekend and I'll chat to you again very soon. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Mirror. The Mirror seeks to provoke questions around the way we create and experience art. And it's my sincere hope that in some way it helps you in your own creative practice and perhaps your life beyond. If this project reaches you in some way, helps you reflect or reframe, or indeed provokes any kind of feelings within you, I'd love to hear from you about it via the contact form on my website. I really appreciate your engagement with The Mirror You can support me and the work that I do by becoming a sustaining member for as little as $40 a year by signing up at justinreed.com.au slash support. You will help me continue to create exceptional work, feel great about directly funding compelling art, and you'll also receive a bunch of great benefits, including access to exclusive films, artworks, and behind-the-scenes material on my membership platform that you can't experience anywhere else, discounts on my online store, and higher tier subscribers even get free access to all of my premium films before anyone else. So become a sustaining member and sign up at justinreed.com.au support. You can also support the show by subscribing to my YouTube channel and listening to full episodes of The Mirror there, complete with meditative, original visuals created just for this project. Our fantastic music is written, produced, and performed by Annalisa Vetrunio, with drums contributed by Giacomo Greco. All of these details and links are included in the episode description. And until next time, I hope you're out there creating great work on your terms. I'm Justin Reed, and you have been listening to The Mirror.